Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you joyfully because we know your good purposes are being worked out in us. We have seen it over the course of this last year. Every time we have faced trials, you have used them to produce steadfastness in our faith. In strained and broken relationships, in illness, in tragedy, and in the mundane, you have shown yourself faithful to work out all things according to your purpose, which is to conform us to the image of your son so that he would be preeminent among your many children. And we come to you joyfully because in the last year you have brought us so much joy. You have blessed this congregation with new marriages and wedding anniversaries, new and enduring friendships that are based on a shared love of you and your word. And you have given us so many babies, new and precious disciples that you will use to further undermine the kingdom of darkness. You will use them as you use all of your church to knock down the gates of hell as you redeem and purify a people for yourself in Christ Jesus. So with all of your faithfulness in mind, we can look forward to a new year, confidently expecting more of the same from you, that in everything we see, the good and the challenging, you are working out your good purposes. Lord, nothing is hidden from your eyes, and we dare not lie to you. Holy Spirit, reveal the sin that we commit and the sin that is so firmly embedded in our hearts so that we would not deceive ourselves thinking that we do not have sin. May our posture always be humble, not even lifting our eyes to heaven until you lift them. Jesus, your teaching is so clear. You came to save the sick, not those who think they are well. So we confess our sins, knowing you are faithful and just to forgive. We confess that we have not walked on the path of holiness, being set apart in every way for you. We have acted like we don't know you and disregarded you. We have made our plans without considering yours and then complained when we didn't get what we wanted. We have let the passions in our bodies control us rather than your Holy Spirit. We have failed to love each other and so failed to love or so failed to prove our love for you. So we ask for forgiveness from you. And we ask that in your grace and mercy, you would lessen the impacts of our sin. Undo the harm we have created. Help us to not just confess, but to repent and to continue being healed of the sin that is in our hearts. We also praise you for the work you are doing in other gatherings around the world and in the Northwest. Specifically today, we pray for Selwood Church in Portland adorn their gathering with your presence this morning. Let their fellowship be rich in Christ and edifying to their faith. We pray that in the preaching, your words would flow to your people and that they would be well-fed with those words. And we pray for Trinity Church in Portland. Give them the same richness in Christ as their pastors lead them through your word. Create fruit in that congregation that is lasting and true. We are excited to hear from your word this morning. For in it, we find good news and great joy. We find that though we were born under a curse, Jesus, you bore that curse on the cross. And on the third day, the Father raised you from the dead. And now, through faith, by no works of our own, we are brought into new life. 
for the revealed and sure word of God is that we will be raised just as surely as you were. So we pray all of these things to you, Father, through the Spirit, and in the name of the Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you, Ryan. Well, it's good to see all of you on this New Year's Eve. I am so thankful to be part of a congregation that loves the Word of God. Amen? And we just finished an awesome series on the Lordship of Christ uh, and a couple of Advent uh, teachings as well. And now we get to step into our next book series, which is 1 Corinthians. And as we usually do when we step into a new book, we take the introduction of that book and we use it to paint the picture and background of the context because we all know that in order to understand what the original author wanted to speak to the original audience, we need to understand the context. Amen? And so we're going to do that today. And so today, if you're new here, it might be a little bit more academic than we're used to, a little less preaching, a little more teaching. Uh, but just stick with us throughout the series, and, and uh, I'm, I'm sure by the grace of God, we will all glean great things from it uh, and see the Spirit move in our lives. Let's pray before I step into the teaching one more time. Father God, we do thank you for your word. We know that it is a grace. We also know that you've given us the grace of your Holy Spirit to illumine your word so that we might understand it. We pray that as we step into 1 Corinthians now, Lord, that you would move past my broken voice and my errant words and my human nature, and that you would use me as a vessel to impart to your church your truth. Help us to be led by you, not by humans. Help us to be led by your spirit, and help us to be changed because of the ministry of your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can open this morning to 1 Corinthians 1. And we're going to cover the giant section of text of the first three verses. On December 7, 1941, Commander Mitsuo Fushida was positioned as pilot at the head of the first wave of the Japanese planes over Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. At 7.40 a.m., he sent up a green flare from his plane and ordered his radio operator to send the message, Torah, Torah, Torah. Commander Fushida was the voice that initiated the surprise attack that resulted in 2,403 American deaths and drew our country into World War II. His hatred of the United States only seemed to grow throughout the war from that point on. He had multiple brushes with death, including almost being in Hiroshima on the day that the nuclear bomb was dropped. After the war, he, asked, he was asked to testify at a war criminal trial regarding the treatment of American POWs in Japan. He said that he had great resentment of our country because he thought that Japanese POWs and the Japanese within the internment camps here in the United States had been treated just as badly, if not worse. To prove his point, he sought out recently released Japanese POWs to establish his case. As part of that investigation, Commander Fushida ended up meeting with his former flight engineer. Mitsuo had believed him to be dead during the Battle of Midway, but he had actually been taken as a prisoner of war, and as he interviewed his old comrade, something extremely surprising happened. I'll quote now from an article you can find regarding this point of his story. Rather than telling a story of abuse and torture by Americans, the old friend told him of a young American woman, Peggy Covell, 
who treated him and his fellow prisoners with great kindness, even though Japanese soldiers had killed her missionary parents in the Philippines. Fushida was astounded. The code of the warrior not only permitted revenge, it demanded it. But this woman declined revenge and offered compassion to Japanese prisoners. This story sparked Fushida's interest in Christianity. As he investigated further, he found other stories of, of deep conversion to Christianity, including that of an American POW who became a Christian in a Japanese POW camp. In September 1949, Fushida, the voice that initiated Pearl Harbor, called on Christ as Lord and Savior. He would say later, quote, Looking back, I can see now that the Lord had laid his hand upon me so that I might serve him. In his autobiography entitled From Pearl Harbor to Calvary, written in 1959, he talks about how he would dedicate the rest of his life to being an evangelist, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus as Lord to those who had not heard it. For Mitsuo Fushida, the gospel had become life-altering. It was not just a story of a different morality, nor was it a general kindness that motivated those who had heard of it. No, the gospel was something that changed him to his core. He would no longer stand in the culture and society that had, at its foundation, the ethic of the earthly warrior that sought revenge at all costs and hatred of its enemy. After hearing of the historic event of Jesus' death and resurrection, Matsuo's life became something completely different, completely changed. He had been called out of the culture and nation of imperial Japan and into the culture and nation of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the reality for every person who has truly been called out of darkness and into the light by the gospel truth of Jesus' death, resurrection, and enthronement. It is not just a new set of rules that drives us to a new morality. It is not just a spiritual and mental ascent. It is something that changes us to our very core and draws us out of the worldview and worldly connections that we once embraced. And then it plants us firmly in submission to Christ to accomplish his will among his people. But all the while, Satan lies close at hand, doesn't he? The father of lies has spent millennia trying to deceive mankind into the same lie of idolatry that he produced in the garden. But when Christ came, when he ministered and preached and died and resurrected, light broke through the lie and gave truth to mankind. But Satan did not give up. He was bound in his complete reign over mankind, but that did not mean he could not cause confusion among mankind. And Satan's primary target from that point on was confusion in the very people that proclaim Christ as king. We fight this same fight still today. This was definitely the case for Christ's church in first century Corinth. In most of Paul's letters and most of the general epistles, the church is shown as constantly confronting confusion within its ranks. In most of those letters, the biggest enemy is coming from outside the church, trying to bring confusion in. But in Corinth, as we will see, that does not seem to be the case. Over the next 10 to 12 months, as we unpack this book in great depth, 
we will see that it was those within the church that were actually causing division, confusion, and disobedience. And as we will see in Corinth, their primary error was not their desire to follow Christ, nor in their attempt to try and be spiritual. Their primary error was doing so without the filter of Christ as Lord and his word as law. It was creating a religion of their own making. They were, as we will see, zealous in their activity, but ignorant in their understanding of Christ as Lord. For much of what they did in the midst of God's church was based upon their old worldview, their old associations, and their old connection to the mindset and culture of the city of Corinth. And quite honestly, they probably didn't even know it. For we are very finite creatures that are locked into what we know and what we experience, and only the truth of Scripture will break us free from that bondage. So Paul will spend the length of this letter doing what the Spirit did to Mitsuo Fushida, doing what the Spirit did to all of us that are truly the Lord's people. Paul will be calling the Christians out of their old culture, their old worldview, and their old associations. He will be calling Christians out of Corinth. And that's why I've entitled the sermon this morning, An Introduction to Paul's Letter Calling Christians Out of Corinth. My prayer as I've been getting ready for this sermon series is that studying this letter will have a great effect on our church body. As I said, we just finished a very reinvigorating series through the idea of sitting under the lordship of Christ. And now the study of this letter, I believe, will help us bring our understanding of what Christ requires in many difficult areas, many hot-button topics, into a position of submission to his lordship. So let's begin with a simple reading of the opening of this letter, and let's paint a bit of a background to what we will uncover throughout the rest of this letter. Let's read now as a church from 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3. And let's read together. If you have an ESV, you can read with me. If you don't have an ESV, you feel free to read out loud, but it'll be slightly different maybe in terms of the translation. Let's read together beginning in verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. What we will see this morning very simply is this. We will see the beginnings of a letter written by a messenger who is sent by Christ, written to those set apart by Christ for his use, and it is a letter based on grace and instructing towards peace. And if you don't get those down on that slide, don't worry. We'll hit them each one by one. The first thing that we see this morning is a letter written by a messenger sent by Christ. We can easily see here that this epistle, this letter, was written by Paul in a historical context of actual events that took place in real time, at a real place, due to real relationships. That context was a historical situation where the church, the congregation located in Corinth, was in conflict with its founder, Paul himself. 
We will see within the first few chapters that there was division and strife within the church. But the biggest conflict of all was with Paul himself. We will see, especially in the chapters that deal with the work of the Spirit among the body, that there were those within the church that thought of themselves as especially spiritual. In the Greek, these are the pneumatikoi, the spiritual ones. Those who believed that they were more spiritual than Paul. And therefore, they were lobbying for Paul to be dismissed as someone to whom the church should not look for wisdom. So Paul responds with a qualifier of the authority behind his ministry. And this self-qualification could be misconstrued as a power grab by some. They could simply see that he is throwing out the word apostle. Take a look there again in verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. He could be potentially throwing this word out, this title of apostle, as an entitlement to respect. But if we look closely, we'll, we will see that this is not at all what he is doing here. And as we read the letter, this will become even more clear. The first thing that we see is that unlike the self-selected pneumaticoi, Paul did not will for this to occur. He did not one day stand up and say, gee, I want to be an elder. I think I have what it takes to be a pastor. He did not choose the position of authority nor seek after it. His calling, if we go back and read his story in Acts, is an experience of compulsion, not innate desire. One can think of him in the mold of the Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah, who was chosen and commissioned and sent by God. He could not stop preaching or it would grow like fire in his bones. He would become weary if he tried to deny it, for he would be going against the divine command and empowerment of God. This was not his choice. This is God's choice. In fact, one could almost surmise here that this is Paul declaring that he is nothing but a servant, one with no autonomy, no authority, sent on behalf of a master who has all authority. And this point will serve very useful as Paul combats a church full of those who have confidence in themselves, in their own wealth, their own status, and their own independent views of spirituality over and above confidence in God. Unfortunately, he is fighting against those in the church that are still very much of Corinth, as their main concerns are their own rights, their own reputation and status and self-promotion. And so Paul is inserting this idea here to start to chip away at it. Secondly, we'll see, we see here that Paul is not showing himself as deserving of submission because he alone is this authority. No, he is not trying to do this on his own. As we see throughout his letters, he does it as a part of a group, part of a team of people. He mentions Sosthenes here as one who is engaged in the work with him. And we don't know exactly if Sosthenes was simply a co-laborer who was just familiar to the people at Corinth, or if he was Paul's personal secretary, acting as a scribe for the letter. Either way, the inclusion of his name shows that Paul is not trying to gain glory for himself alone. Friends, this is why I call the other elders pastors, because yes, I am the lead pastor, I get paid to do this for a living, but we are all pastors, we are all elders. There is no one of us that is more important, more special, maybe I'm taller, that's about it, right? But all of us have the same exact role, and that is to be a servant of Christ in service to his people. That's what Paul is doing here. Paul was not an apostle by his own will, nor for his own glory. He was called by the will of God. 
He was established and put in place by God. To fight against Paul then was to fight against God's commissioned emissary to spread the gospel and lead the church. Paul understood his place and the churches he was planting within the redemptive timeline of God's sovereign work and plan. He is called by God in verse 1, and then you'll notice that the church in verse 2 is called by God as well. Each of us have been called by God. Yes, Paul was called to something amazing, writing a great percentage of the New Testament. Yes, I was called, in a sense, to come down here and plant a church. Praise God. But every one of us has been called to be part of Christ's kingdom in service to one another, in service to Christ. Paul understood his place, and he's calling the church to do so as well. He's calling them to realize that they have been called for a particular reason at a particular time to accomplish a particular mission. And all of the authority that Paul is about to utilize throughout this letter is based not on himself, not on his title or will, but upon the authority and lordship of Jesus as anointed king. Notice that in these first three verses, Paul notes God the Father three times, Christ Jesus four times, and the word Lord three times. This will be Paul's strategy throughout the letter and one that we must employ as well for our church to be as obedient to Christ as possible. We must take our eyes off of one another and the strife and drama that happens in our midst when we act in merely human ways. And we must look towards the one who is king, who has called us to be his saints. That is where Paul is pressing the church at Corinth. And that is where he's pressing every local congregation, including Mission Fellowship. This word calling or called is not one to gloss over. For the connotation here is that God acted in a providential way to call Paul into the role of an apostle. And as Paul proclaimed the gospel and raised up the church in the city of Corinth, he did so that he might also providentially call those in the city who were his people, known since the foundations of the earth. Just as our first reading indicated out of Psalms, God drew his people to whom he would show himself faithful so that they might obey him and serve him, and in so doing, reflect his lordship to the nations. They, like us, are meant to declare that Christ is Lord so that when judgment day comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that his judgments are righteous and true and that he is Lord. Acts 18 shows us the story behind Paul's time here in Corinth. Notice these verses. This is Acts 18, 9 through 11. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. How did he know that? Paul hadn't yet done a crusade and asked people to come down front and pray a sinner's prayer. How did God know? Well, because he had elected them since the foundations of the world. They were his people, and through Paul's work and the work of the church in Corinth, they would hear the gospel and step into the truth of their identity in Christ. And so Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Notice in these verses the extremely providential language. Paul was sent to Corinth because of God's desire to call out those who were his own. 
God's predestined election of his church within Corinth necessitated, necessitated Paul's work there so that they might hear the gospel, believe, and serve Christ together. Friends, this is a great reminder for us as well. You see, I think in our myopic and quite honestly ordinary lives, we can easily forget the providential will of God where the reality of our lives is one of calling. Friends, you might think, oh, my life is so ordinary. It is basic. I just go to work and go home and do my thing. But friends, behind that, you don't need some prosperity preacher to tell you that you have purpose in your life. That usually means for your success and your glory. But the Bible says clearly, God has a purpose for you. That is not for your success and glory. It is for his. Amen? And so our lives, the reality of our lives, is one of calling yours as well if you are his. For God has been faithful to his own. He has called us out of the world and out of our sin into his kingdom and glory so that like the church at Corinth, we might serve him and proclaim his enthronement in our cubicles, in our classrooms, to our children in morning devotions, to our husbands and our wives as we pray together at night, to one another within the church. That is your purpose, that is my purpose, that is our purpose. God has been faithful and he's called us to do this. That was, the saint, that, that was for the saints at Corinth and this is the case for the saints through all time and space, including here and now in Salem, Oregon in 2023. The question for each of us is whether or not we believe this about ourselves. Have we accepted this from the Lord? Because that's what Paul was trying to get the Corinthian Christians to do, is accept the truth of her, who they were, who this church was. Now, there is some debate as to the writing of this letter, but as a whole, academia in general uh, has agreement that Paul had first contact with Corinth in the summer of about AD 51. Now, think about how close this was in times of history to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. You've got about 18 years. Having been so close to the time of Jesus' ministry and Paul having interacted with Christ in a vision and spent time with the apostles who were eyewitnesses of the redemptive work, it made Paul a perfect person to come and declare these truths to the church at Corinth. But he would continue on with his missionary work, and so he handed the leadership of the church over to other men. And throughout the next three years, the church would grow and come under the leadership of men like the very accomplished preacher known as Apollos. And it was under his leadership, perhaps, that the prominent role of the pneumaticoi, the hyper-spiritual, began to develop in the church. Apollos saw the issues developing, and so he, along with others, brought word of some growing difficulties in the church to Paul. And in response, Paul wrote a letter of correction in the summer or fall of AD 53. Now that letter predated 1 Corinthians. You can think of it as zero Corinthians. We know this to be true even from our letter here. This is from 1 Corinthians 5.9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. He's speaking of a previous letter there. Spring and summer of AD 54 then became a period of attempting to right the ship of the church in Corinth. And it's widely accepted that Paul wrote the letter we hold in our hands in that time of 54 AD, his second, at least, letter to the Corinthians. Now, I know that messes us all up with our numbering system, but we can still refer to it as 1 Corinthians. 
Now we can intimate from what we know as 2 Corinthians as well that relations continued to deteriorate to some degree, but a level of reconciliation did occur. But Corinth would continue to be a hotbed of spiritual warfare for the hearts and minds of the people. We know this because in 96 AD, Clement of Rome wrote one of the earliest letters outside of the New Testament canon in regards to an errant removal of elders from their positions in the Corinthian church. It seems that the ongoing fight between congregants and leadership would happen even here at one of Paul's flagship ministries. So is it shocking that that still happens in today's church? Not at all. You see, church history tells us clearly that the most fruitful churches are often the places where the greatest spiritual warfare occurs. Now, why would this be the case here in Corinth? Well, Corinth was possibly, outside of Rome, one of the most influential locations from which to launch the preaching of the gospel. The ancient city of Corinth was established somewhere prior to 3000 BC. It had existed forever. And it was on an isthmus or land bridge that had at either side two harbors that led to Asia Minor and to Italy. Both were sources of intense commerce and trade. To its north was the mainland of Greece with Athens just to the east. To its south was the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And Corinth was truly at this place a crossroads of the ancient world. All money in the ancient world would have flown through, flowed through here at one point or another. Now across this isthmus was a road that ancient sailors would wheel their cargo or even their smaller boats so that they could forego the dangerous trek down around the south, the area where Paul actually will get into a shipwreck in the book of Acts. In 1893, they wanted to take use of this so much so that they engineered a canal to replace the road. If you look closely in this picture, you can see it there. The city Paul encountered here at Corinth was slightly newer, though, than ancient Corinth. It had been a capital and political center of this part of the world for much of its existence. But in 146 BC, Rome tired of its independent spirit. Corinth had declared war on Sparta, an ally of Rome, and so the Roman army was sent to destroy it, and destroy it it did. The city was looted and virtually razed. But in 44 BC, about 100 years later, Julius Caesar decided to refound the city and revitalized it with Roman citizens. And so you have this brand new city, the spirit of youth. You have all of this new populace coming in, a mix of prior slaves that had been freed, retired military veterans, laborers, and traders. And this mix of people that was the fullness of the populace created a kind of Napoleon complex, if you will. If you don't know what that is, I don't have one because I'm super tall. I probably have some other complex. These were people who were once downtrodden, but had picked themselves up by their own bootstraps, so to speak. It gave the city a strong sense of self-confidence and entitlement, which would contribute to the problems in the church that we will see. And being centered in this strategic location, most scholars agree that Paul wasn't just randomly traveling wherever he could. Rather, he was being strategic in his effort to plant churches and declare the gospel in places that would have the most far-reaching impact on the known world. Paul knew exactly what he was walking into when he ended up in Corinth. He had been called by God and sent by Christ as a messenger to plant churches in places just like Corinth. Now, the culture I just mentioned, combined with the fact that it was a center of commerce, made ancient 
Corinth a hotbed of activity similar to New York or Bangkok or Los Angeles. With that kind of commerce came hedonism of every sort. For comparison today, we would look to Las Vegas or Amsterdam. Such an environment was fertile ground for the spread of the gospel, but it also made walking the life of a saint, pursuing holiness, extremely difficult. And so Paul writes this letter to the church at Corinth, also as a letter written to those set apart by Christ for his use. A letter written to those set apart by Christ for his use. That is why we can do what we do when we go into the ministry of the word. We can see it in its original context, from the original author to the original audience. But then through the lens of the cross, we can glean from it principles to help us live as well as Christians set apart by Christ for his use. The church to which Paul is writing is located in Corinth, but it is not to be of Corinth. Mission Fellowship is a a church in Salem, but it is not to be of the Pacific Northwest, if you get my drift. Or you could just say of Portland. Now let's read what Paul says again in verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. This call was going to be tough. Corinth was known, as I said, as a center of hedonism. For it is largely true that where money flows, sin is not far behind. And in the time under Roman rule, this was especially true. It was known not only for greed and opulence, but for being a center of any form of sexual promiscuity in which you wanted to engage. An Athenian playwright of the time used the phrase Corinthiazethi as a synonym for fornication. To call a young woman a Corinthian girl was to indicate that she was extremely promiscuous. And the close relationship between trade guilds and the temples of their patron pagan gods meant that commercial activity and temple prostitution, well, they were highly connected. They were one and the same. It was also known as a place of great entertainment, especially that of an athletic nature. It was home to the Isthmian Games, which were one of the major Greek games celebrated biennially. Those games provided strong income for the city. Unfortunately, just as with the Super Bowl or World Cup today, sex trafficking and prostitution were not far behind. This competitive drive intersected with the self-sufficient nature of the citizens of this city to create a culture where success and identity and appearance were primary motivators for all of life. You can only imagine what it would have been like if they'd had social media to add to it. Climbing the social ladder, seeming more important than those around you, and having a reputation of being the best was central to this society in which Paul is trying to bring a very contradictory gospel truth. You see, he was trying to bring a truth that was simply that they, like us, are sinners who've rebelled against our creator God. We have nothing but pride that we should get rid of. They, like us, were rebelling against God's good order. And Christ had come to redeem them from their sins and call them into the Creator's good order under his loving rule. This was the gospel that he was trying to present, that they had been redeemed, but they didn't seem to need it, they thought. 
So Paul had an uphill battle, to say the least. As in most pagan religions, the focus on materialism, wealth, and sexuality was propped up and encouraged through an extremely pluralistic religious landscape. Ancient Corinth was known especially for its worship of Aphrodite. If you don't know her, she was the Greek goddess of love and beauty, pleasure, and procreation. The Roman name for her was Venus, and her temple was atop the great rock monolith that sat above Corinth. Ancient tradition states that at the height of Aphrodite worship in Corinth, there were 1,000 temple prostitutes, all too happy to assist in the pagan worship of their patroness. Now, by the time Paul visited the city, the temple was far less impressive, but the stench of the gross and disgusting worship of Aphrodite still inhabited the city. And this was combined with temple worship for various other gods. Poseidon, the Greek god of the sea, was the patron of the Isthmian Games. There were temples to Demeter, the goddess of agriculture, Isis, Hermes, and even a temple dedicated to all the gods. Feasts to these deities within the temples were a very normal part of everyday life and community. And the debauchery that often took place at these feasts was energized by frequent sales of wine from one of the minimum 33 wine shops whose ruins have been unearthed by archaeologists, an astounding number for an ancient city of this size. A large temple that had existed for hundreds of years by Paul's day was the temple to Apollo, the Greek sun god. Could it possibly be that this influenced the church's infatuation with Apollos, the golden-tongued preacher Paul sent to teach them? We won't know for sure. Corinth was also famous for the temple of a god, a false god, known as Asclepios. This was the god of medicine and healing. The hedonistic activity of the area led to, shall we say, many diseases, especially of a certain sort, if you get my drift. To entice this supposed god to heal them from these diseases, pagan Corinthians would have clay casts of their ailing body parts made to give as an offering to Asclepius. Archaeological digs have uncovered body parts of every kind and sort. And I do mean every kind. Do not go look this god up. It will hit your covenant eyes report. <laughs> Some wonder if this gave fodder to Paul as he used the body and its many parts as a very vivid picture to what the church should be in its worship of Christ. Corinth was a society molded in the midst of great monetary wealth, athletic entertainment, a false sense of self-made importance, political sway, and intense sexual immorality. I wonder if Christians amidst the backdrop of 21st century America could learn anything from reading this letter. What do you think? It was against this backdrop of Corinth that Paul is going to need to describe in great detail what the contrasting nature of the church is to look like. You see, the nature of the church in comparison as a whole and in each local expression of it is to indeed be contradictory to this society and the society in which any local church is found. This is true even in the supposed Judeo-Christian West. When the church looks too much like the society around it or finds itself in league with the political structures or social justice structures within it, there is a major problem going on. For at its core, the church is created by a different authority, which is God himself. He does not operate by the rules of the society he places his church in. The church at Corinth then was not to be of Corinth. 
It was merely located in Corinth. This is why it is called the church of God that is in Corinth. And because of the possible confusion of what the church is to look like, Paul will use the term ekklesia in the Greek, rendered church in the English translation, 22 times in this letter. This letter will give us more understanding of the nature of the church than perhaps any other epistle of Paul or any other portion of the New Testament for that matter. His use of the word here carries with it immense background context. For Jewish Paul, who used the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament as his primary Bible, the word ekklesia was rich with meaning. In the Septuagint, it was the word used to speak of the assembly of God's chosen and elect people, Israel. And it was therefore innate to the word ecclesia, the word church, that this was a group of people chosen by God, called out from among the pagan nations, just as Abraham had been, for God's specific use and witness. And as the early church saw itself as the more complete and fulfilled Israel, this would make sense. They were, we are, for his use. We are his. And this ownership and lordship of God over the church is repeated four times here. Notice that they are known first and foremost as the church of God. Then they're also sanctified in Christ. Sanctified here is just a fancy term for being set apart by God in his providential choice to accomplish his purposes. Then they're also called by God to be saints. Friends, this is not just a football team. Those being made holy are his saints. Those who make up the church across all time and space are his saints. It's always fun to point this out to my Catholic brethren that we're all saints. You don't have to be canonized. Together, they all respond to God's call by calling upon his name, his authority to be their Lord, both their Lord and ours. Paul is overemphasizing with a purpose in mind to remind the church at Corinth that unlike their peers in this city, they are not self-made, they are not independent nor autonomous, and they are not able to live in a liberty decided by their own whims. Nope, they have been brought and bought at a price of Christ's blood. They have been made his own by his providential call in their lives and are under his mastery as he molds them by his spirit into reflections of his glory. Brothers and sisters, this is what it is to be a Christian. This is what it is to be a part of the elect assembly under the authority of Christ our Lord. It is a divine calling for everyone who calls upon the name Jesus. Just as Paul had been called by Christ to be his apostle, to be a Christian in any locale is to be called by Christ to live as his set-apart holy ones. To believe in the right doctrine of the cross meant that right living must follow in honor of the king that redeemed you. And that meant this church was like all true churches. This church in Corinth was not special, just like Mission Fellowship is not special, able to seek its own way or form its own doctrine because of its place in society. No, every true church must recognize itself, just as we must, as part of the more universal church that is made up of all God's elect from across time and throughout the world, God's true church, expressed in local venues. But now that we see the nature of the called church in comparison to the nature of Corinth itself, if you've even glanced at this letter before, you recognize the problem Paul is seeking to address. The church of Corinth 
was more of Corinth than they were of God's kingdom. And I fear that if we don't watch out for it, the church of Salem will look far more like Salem than it will of God's kingdom. As we will see, the letter reads as a seeming catalog of ways in which the members and the church as a whole were showing that they belong to the patron deities of Corinth over and above belonging to Christ. I wonder, brothers and sisters, what false gods do you belong to that you're even unaware of? What false gods do I belong to that I'm unaware of? We must root this out and crucify this idolatry so that we can serve the one true master and above all belong to Christ. The divisions that these fueled, the lawsuits that they brought against one another, the lack of discipline under the reign of Christ within the church, the sexual immorality, the rampant selfishness, the bizarre need to be seen as hyper-spiritual, all of this in the Corinthian church was more pagan than Christ-like. All of this was not of Christ, but it was of Corinth. Rather than sit under the lordship of Christ, they sat under their own conglomeration of pagan ideals about Christ that led them to their own lordship. Listen to how Paul addresses them in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. We'll get here in a few months, probably. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Notice he's being a little bit punny there to those in the church that were the spiritual ones. I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, but you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? In other words, Paul is saying, I want to agree with you that you are spiritual, but your immaturity in Christ keeps me from it. How badly the current day church needs this same wake-up call. For it is often the people that claim the most spiritual insight and spiritual maturity that are missing the most blatant truth of Christ's lordship in their lives. The occasion of writing this letter had been brought on as Paul heard reports from various people coming and telling them that Corinthian values had crept into the church unnoticed. And friends, this is the same today. Pick your ideology. Whether it be Christian nationalism, BLM, social justice, it does not matter. It's crept into the church, but it's only of Satan. And Paul was addressing this same thing. This was confirmed by a letter written to Paul asking various questions. They were divided along lines of differing leaders in the church as well as class distinctions and worldviews that seemed more political than they did of Christ. Some members were suing each other in civil trials. There were cases of unchecked sexual morality. The church thought itself so merciful and gracious and nice to not do church discipline. Does that sound familiar today? Others were wrongly insisting on sexual libertinism and affirming of sexual sin as if it were nothing, while others wrongly insisted on celibacy and marriage if one was to call oneself holy. Some denied even a bodily resurrection, and confusion was rampant around food offered to idols and manifestations of the work of the Holy Spirit. Tongues was a big deal. And so Paul's corrective letter corrective letter to this church that we will unpack over the coming months 
presents practical issues from which we can apply many principles of Christ's wisdom even today. Hopefully, we should be salivating to get into this so that we have the understanding of Christ on these issues. Paul's strategy of orthodoxy leading to orthopraxy is simple. Remind them of Christ's work. Remind them of who they are in Christ, and it will reform the hearts of the members of the Corinthian church in a huge way. And friends, this is the same hope that we should have today. This is the same hope that should drive us to be here every Lord's day as we sit under the ministry of the word of Paul, as we unpack the various riches of this book. Because like Paul, we hope that this letter will be a letter based on grace and instructing towards peace. A letter based on grace and instructing toward peace. Paul finishes his introduction and greeting with this verse, verse three. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Within four Greek words, Paul weaves a powerful message. Grace to you and peace. Yes, it's five in English. I can count. Four Greek words, five English. The need for grace and peace automatically indicates a supposed need for reconciliation from division and rebellion. You see, you would not need grace, nor would you need peace, if you didn't innately have brokenness in your relationship with the God with whom Paul is trying to reconcile you to. Grace is the gift given that brings about peace, reconciliation, shalom, wholeness with Christ and therefore with the creator God against whom we have all once rebelled. Friend, if you're sitting here today and you think, what odd words, why would he use these? These were to intimate, to tell, to proclaim even to the people of Corinth that they were in rebellion against their creator God. If you've never thought about that because you've just been living your life, today is the day that Christ has brought to your attention light in the midst of darkness, that you have rebelled against your creator. And if you go on unchecked in this rebellion, your eternity will be one spent under the wrath of God in eternal conscious torment. I don't want that for you. Christ does not want that for you. And so I pray that if you are here today, that you are then one of those people who are Christ's here in Salem. And that he is calling you to be his own. He is calling you right now to be his own. And so all you need to do is respond to him and say, Lord, I am yours. Teach me how to be yours. And by his Holy Spirit and the ministry of this church, if you so choose to walk with us, we would love to walk with you in that pursuit. And even today, one of our pastors would love to talk with you about any questions you have around that. But if you feel and know that Christ is calling you, please come chat with us because he is doing this. He is trying to reconcile you. He has already reconciled you through the cross, but he is trying to draw you into that reconciliation. Paul knows that the solution for the Corinthians is not simply aligning with the religious landscape of the day, nor is it to gain power within the spiritual framework of the people that make up the church. Nor is it simply to be made more spiritual in a general sense. The solution for the Corinthians is found in knowing and walking in the gospel by the power of God's Holy Spirit. 
The peace that Paul is seeking is not some therapeutic lack of anxiety or feeling of inner fulfillment or contentment. It is a restored and reconciled relationship with God, the Father of all those who call upon his declared Lord Jesus as their anointed king. At its most basic level, friends, the letter of 1 Corinthians will answer for us the question, how does the proclamation of the historic event of Jesus' death and resurrection teach us to live in the midst of a society that is so blatantly opposed to the truths that flow from it? And it will cause us to investigate how we can keep the church strong against the rising tide of secular so-called wisdom that encroaches from every side. Through the study of this letter, friends, we will grow more mature as individual Christians as we learn to have greater discernment about what is of Christ and what is not. In the theological melting pot we exist in today, this is very important. And I believe that we will also grow as a church, understanding more fully the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the work he performs within the church to unify us and place us under the loving reign of Christ. And we will learn, just as the Corinthians did, what it is to be called out of the earthly world we physically inhabit in order to fulfill the will of God for the declaration of his gospel truth to all those around us who so badly need it. Friend, the first thing that you must do this morning, the application that we have from this very simple introduction, is to ask the question, am I of Christ? And if so, do I accept the identity that he has given me, that I am called for his purposes to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours? If so, we should meet this letter with great anticipation because we should desire to know how to fulfill that call, amen? We should desire to be the people that Christ, through Paul, is calling us to be. We should be excited to know what it is to be in Salem, but not of Salem. And so as we begin this new study, let's seek the empowerment of God through his Holy Spirit that we might hear the one sent by Christ as his messenger so that we might live out our calling as those set apart by Christ for his use. And we may grab hold of the grace we have been given so that it might instruct us toward greater peace with Christ and with one another. That's my prayer for us as a church. That's my prayer for us today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your inspiration of our brother Paul. Thank you, Lord, that we are not alone in this world trying to figure out on our own your truth. If we did, we would end up in destruction far from it. And so thank you, Lord, for your inspiration of Paul to that first church in Corinthians, in Corinth. Help us, Lord, to glean from it everything we can so that we might take what you intended for them and apply it to our situation today here in Salem, that we might be a church called out of Salem while we yet inhabit it. For every individual heart here this morning, Lord, I pray that you would give each of us an understanding of our purpose to fulfill your will, to live lives that reflect you and proclaim your enthronement to the world around us so that those who are yours might be drawn to your benevolent rule. We thank you for saving us. We thank you 
for building us up by your spirit. We thank you for calling us to this place this morning to hear this word and to worship you as we were created to do. And we pray, Lord, that as we continue now moving forward in worship but keeping at the center of our worship, the gospel, we pray that you would empower us by your spirit to sing with voices that declare who you are in our lives, to encourage one another with our congregational singing, to declare through your supper that you gave us that we are one with you and that we are adopted as your children into your family. And it's all by your work of the cross. We thank you today. We give you praise. And we pray that you would lead the remainder of this worship service. In Jesus' name, amen.